I'm Richard Portnow. I played Harold Melvoin on The Sopranos. You're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you love the podcast, please spread the word. Share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. That's all it takes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube, at Potabing. And if you're up for it, you can support the show by visiting glow.fm slash Potabing. If you'd like to play in the trivia series for a chance to win swag, guest on the pod, or just secure permanent bragging rights, DM at Potabing on Instagram. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Richard Portnow. Richard played Harold Melvoin, Junior's lawyer, on the show. Richard joined me in studio to talk about his 40-year career, triumphs and missteps, and his experience on The Sopranos. In addition to great conversation, Richard's visit motivated me to renew my gym membership or get on a treadmill or some combination thereof. The guy looked like a prize fighter in his prime. I enjoyed this one and hope you do too. Here it is. Richard Portnow, thank you for being here. You're welcome. 209 acting credits, and that doesn't include theater. That's right. An incredible body of work. What project stands out in your mind today, stage or screen? Good morning, Vietnam. Most exciting job I've ever had. Three months in Bangkok. I was just breaking through, and I had done Tin Men the previous summer for Barry Levinson and Mark Johnson, director-producer team. And at the opening of Tin Men at the Museum of Modern Art, as I was walking in, they had blue police barricades up. I heard someone say, that's Richard Portnow. I was on cloud nine. That's amazing. I had never heard that or anything like it. I was just getting started. And Barry came up to me and said, we're doing a movie about DJs. And I remember you have a pretty good voice. Would you be interested in joining us on this? I said, absolutely. He said, well, you'd have to try out, but I think that you're really very right for it. And I said, listen, Barry, I know you take a long time to make up your mind. You did with Tin Men and my being cast. I'm in rehearsals for a Broadway play. We're about to open. If you can't make a decision by Friday, I can't do it because then I'd be screwing the people that are behind the play and in the play. And he called me on Wednesday and he said, Richard, you know, I can't make up my mind that fast. I said, I understand. And I had been offered two other films, both of which I turned down because of the play. It was a chance to open on Broadway with Jason Robards. Sure. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Well, the play closed after one night. Clive Barnes killed us. We opened on a Friday. Closing notice went up on Saturday. And I was very depressed, obviously. Told my agents, well... Reach out to the people that were interested in me for those movies. Let them know I'm available. 
One of the films had come and gone. It was a German film called Magic Sticks. And actually, my acting teacher was in it. Uh, another of the films being directed by Bob Giraldi, who was a famous commercial director in New York. The part had been shot, but he told my agents, I want him in the film. I'll give him a different part. And I went down to Wilmington and did it. Came back, and I got the phone call to change my life. At one in the morning, Mark Johnson called me, the producer, and he said, I heard your play closed. I said, yeah, Mark, I can really pick him, huh? And he said, well, we can't offer you the part we were originally interested in you for, but there are other parts. You want to join us? And I said, yeah, sure. And where are you calling me from? And he said, Bangkok. I didn't even know where Bangkok was. What year was this? This was 1987. Yeah. In uh, May of 1987. And three days later, I was on a plane to Bangkok, studied the wrong part on the plane, Turned out Bruno Kirby was given the role of Lieutenant Hauk. Uh, wonderful part, and he played it brilliantly. The part that you were originally thought of for. supposed to get. Okay. I wasn't supposed to get it, but I was in, the in contention for it. Um, in retrospect, I don't think I ever would have found what Bruno found. I thought he was right in the pocket on that. I felt like an outsider. Because I joined them a week late, and I wasn't sure of myself, had studied the wrong part. I let that inform the part. I was Dan the Man Levitan, the boring DJ, and I decided, well, the guy's got a golden throat, but he can't get it right. Did that role have anything to do with the later role in Private Parts? You were Howard Stern's father? Nothing to do Nothing with to that. Nothing to do with that. Your baritone no. is signature. I thought maybe there was some connection there. No, none at all. Your career spans almost 40 years, right. uh, as old as I've been alive, pretty much. What was your life like immediately before you started acting? It was a struggle. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Actually... I got into acting by accident. Servicemen are going to be angry with what I'm going to say. Our military is going to frown on this. I didn't want to go to Vietnam. When I was in college, you were deferred as long as you stayed in school. They were sending everybody to Vietnam, and I was flunking out. I didn't want to be in school. I wanted to be out there moving and shaking and smoking weed and having a good time. And I told my buddy, Jerry, I'm flunking out. He said, yeah, I know, Richard. They're going to send you to Vietnam. Jerry, what do I do? What do I do? He said, take acting. Guaranteed A. They want to encourage you. They want to build your confidence. No tests to take. No papers to write. No books to read. There's always pretty girls in the class. Where do I sign? Everything he said was true. Uh, I did not shine when I was in college. They used to put their heads in their hands and say to each other, what are we going to do with this guy? He's terrible. I read that earlier in your, in your career, you were told you were, quote, hopeless and without any ability or talent. That's true. It's harsh. That is harsh, but they were right. I was dreadful. But the minute I got out of school, something clicked. I don't know what. William Morris snapped me up. Head of new talent, Judy Abbott. She was the daughter of George Abbott, a famous producer who lived to be 100. 
He outlived his daughter. How did she find you? I'll be very honest. I was in a group therapy session, and one of the people in the session was a music agent at William Morris. And he said, well, when you're feeling ready, I'll introduce you to a talent agent for actors. Incredible. And he did. And she said, well, Richard, uh, you haven't done anything. I said, I know, I know. And school, she said, school, great, school doesn't count. You haven't done anything, but there's something about you that tells me you can, and I'm going to sign you. Now, when you're young, and sometimes I do seminars for struggling actors, beginning actors, especially young actors, when you're young, you can be the next fill-in-the-blank. They don't know. Well, this kid can be the next Al Pacino, the next Tom Cruise. He's handsome. The next who knows. And uh, that was on my side, that possibility. But she also felt something about this guy. And the first thing she sent me out on, I got, which was a big stage play in London at the most prestigious theater in England, the Royal Court Theater. And I did the play, and then I lost my way and quit acting for five years. During that period of time... Is that uh, when you did boxing? Well, I started boxing when I was about 11 years old. The Police Athletic League is an outfit sponsored by the police force in New York City that takes kids off the street by getting them involved in a sport. You've got to try basketball and baseball and boxing and football. I had no talent for football or basketball and baseball I could hit, but I couldn't catch. In boxing, when you're 11, you don't know how to box. You just flail away. And they saw that when I got punched in the face, I didn't cry. You know, you're 11 years old, 10 years old. You get punched in the mush, you start crying. And they figured, well, this kid can take a punch. Let's encourage him. And I stayed with it. I was terrible. I fought with my foot in the bucket, and I really didn't slip, and I, I had no right hand. I had a good left, and I could take a punch. But I stayed with it. I enjoyed it. I didn't like getting hit in the face, but it didn't freak me out. And I liked the training, and uh, I stayed with it. And I still hit the speed bag because that doesn't hurt my hands. I broke my right hand three times, my left hand once. And I can't hit the heavy bag anymore. I've got severe arthritis in the joint of my right hand. You still do it for working out purposes? Well, I can't hit the heavy bag. Okay. I can hit the mitts, and I can hit the double-end bag, the bobbing bag, and the speed bag. I'm really good on the speed bag. Wow. But we don't have any of that in my gym. All we have are the heavy bags, and occasionally I'll move around with a guy that holds the focus mitts. And, you know, that's cool. But I don't skip the rope. I never had feet. Didn't dance, plotted away, but uh, I've been exercising, as you can tell by my incredible build. You are incredible. <laughs> <laughs> For 50 years, I've been committed to exercise. Amazing. Yeah, I love it. Go back to those five years. What was going on in that hiatus? Oh, I was just uh, traveling around the world, drinking, taking drugs, and getting laid. And it was because you didn't want to act, or it was because you— No, I, I lost my way. Okay. I had been taking strong psychedelics. Got it. And uh, I just lost my way. And if I quit, I wasn't failing. If I quit, I wasn't competing, so I wasn't failing. But I always knew I'd go back to it someday— and uh, I went back and forth to London a lot. I ran nightclubs on the Fulham Road in Chelsea in London. I'm going to name a project 
Um, and these are some blockbuster all-time projects you were a part of. You mentioned the first one. Um, I'd like you to say a thing or two that comes to mind. Good morning, Vietnam. Barry Levinson liked his actors to continue dialogue after what was written had been finished. He let the camera roll, and a lot of it was improvised, and he told me at one point, I'm going to put you back on the air. Come up with some stuff. And that's where I came up with... So remember, GIs, always rinse your razor with cold water instead of hot. Your face will look and feel a whole lot better. That's it for Hygiene in the Heat. Tomorrow we'll be discussing foot care, so be sure to tune in. This is yours truly, Dan the Man Levitan and AFRS Radio Saigon. Well, when I said Hygiene in the Heat, they almost lost it. The way Sidney Lamette almost lost it when John Cazale, in response to Pacino's, you can go anywhere in the world, we can get out of here, I can make it happen. Anywhere in the world, any country you want. And John Cazale thinks for a second and says, Wyoming? And I worked for Sydney. He said, I almost fell on the floor and ruined the take. But when I said hygiene and the heat, they thought, wow, it's worth the entire mag of film. And uh, made it into the movie. I think it made it into the EPK, the electronic press kit and the trailer and you know, it oh, was, it was in the trailer too. I think so. I'll go back and look at I'm it. I'm not certain of that. I just watched the film for the first time from beginning to end since 1987 when it came out. I hadn't seen it. And uh, it's really something when you see a photo of yourself from 30 years ago. That's one thing. Gosh, did I ever look that young? But when you see yourself moving and talking and reacting, it's very different. You it's got to be surreal. It is surreal. And I thought there were things that I saw in the film that I don't remember doing. Where did I come up with that? Boy, was I good. Twins. Twins was an offer. I got to L.A., that's why I say good morning, Vietnam, really changed my life. The producer invited me to stay at his house on my way back to New York. He said, you got to land in L.A. And I took him up on it. I gave Danny a call because we became friendly. He was a very outgoing man on Tin Man. He said, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I'm staying with Mark Johnson. He said, I'm doing a movie. You're perfect for one of the parts. And I was cast, uh, which led to a very strong and fruitful relationship with Ivan Reitman and his producers, especially Joe Medjuk, a great guy. He gave me the suits from Kindergarten Cop. You segued perfectly to the next movie, Kindergarten Cop. Schwarzenegger. Funny guy. He was in Twins, obviously, but we didn't have scenes together. We did in Kindergarten Cop. And at the rap party, he comes over to me and he slaps me on the back. I almost flew across the room. Uh... I liked him a lot. Good guy. Had a good time on that film, and they dressed me beautifully. <laughs> uh, Father of the Bride. I had a wonderful time. Steve Martin is basically the only movie star who I've ever really been impressed by. The man glows with social grace and talent and humor and intelligence. I was really impressed by the guy. Very gracious man. He seemed to like what I was doing, and when I look at Clips from that. My main clip where I'm selling the knockoffs, I thought, yeah, you're in the pocket with this one, man. Have you read his book? 
No, I haven't. Born Standing Up? No. Really I, really good. It's, I didn't it, know he wrote one. Yeah, I knew he, he wrote plays. He wrote a memoir, uh, I want to say almost 10 years ago now. Born Standing Up. Born Standing I'll Up. It. It's, uh, it's exceptional. It's probably one of my all-time really? five greatest reads. I did a play in New York for Woody Allen. He wrote it and directed it first time. And I flew in from L.A. And all the actors in it were theater actors. And they looked down their nose at me. Now, after the play comes down every night, you're in the green room taking off your makeup and your costumes. And the stage manager peeks her head in one night after we finished because we knew Steve was in the audience. And she said, Richard, Steve is waiting for you in the green room. And every one of these highfalutin theater actors, they looked at me like, whoa. And he was there with his bride-to-be and very friendly and recounted our doing Father of the Bride and doing a reading of the Neil Simon update of The Odd Couple. Uh, I liked them a lot. Sister Act. Sister Act. I did the reading around a table, which big movies and small movies will do. It's the first time they've heard it read out loud. You get a bunch of actors. They're invited to do it. All the producers and the writer and the director are sitting around on the outside of the inner circle where the actors are reading. And I was savvy enough to know, don't just come in familiar with the material. Come in with the character and the performance. Be ready to shoot, which I did. And it was almost a fait accompli. I had to read for it, but it was mine to lose. They made the offer before I got back over the hill. I had a great time, you know, run of the film. Uh, I have stories to tell about Harvey Keitel, but I won't because he might beat me up. Uh, Seven. Well, that was an offer. Yes, that was an offer. And I hated what I did and hated the way I looked. I was 20 pounds overweight. And David Fincher did at least 10 takes it was a wonder. Were you overweight for the part? Or no, was just a, no. A period I was, of your life. I was eating too much. Okay. Uh, a wonder is when you don't have close-ups. You just come in. You don't set up a close-up. You're on a dolly track and you move with the actors and you float from one to the other. And uh, I hated the take he picked. People love it because of the line I have. He's suffered more than any man I've ever seen, but he still has hell to look forward to. That might be paraphrased, but I really didn't like what I did in that film. I love that you have the ability to look back on it in hindsight. A lot of uh, talent and actors that I've talked to, they don't watch their stuff and they don't have opinions on it. Part of the reason is what you just said, that they might not like the take they get or whatever. But Well, I'll tell you, I'm never satisfied. I don't think you should be That's why be you have satisfied. 209 credits. Because... I don't think, thank you. I don't think any artist should ever be satisfied, especially performing artists. You can always find another color or go deeper or change things up. If you're satisfied, that means you stop doing your homework and the performance becomes locked in. Bad idea. Couple more before we get to the main event, Sopranos. Private parts. When I auditioned for it, I did not know the cadence of shut up, sit down. But I got the part because I looked like the father. 
So I really had not listened to Howard's show. And I went to New York a week before we started to meet his parents. And I got permission. And I'll never forget this. Uh, when I when I showed up and his wife opened the door and ushered me in, she had a little bowl of dull pineapple chunks with toothpicks in them, which my parents used to serve us. And she said, would you like some? I said, I'd love some. And then his dad comes in, Ben Stern, and we're sitting and we're talking. And he was a tall man, uh, but we did kind of look a little bit alike. And when he left the room, I asked his wife, is there anything your husband do does that might be a little unusual? For instance, wiping crumbs off the table that aren't there, anything he does. She said, well, every day when he comes home from work, I have a Manhattan prepared in the fridge with a piece of saran wrap covering it, and I bring it out. He sits at the table. I give it to him. He takes the saran wrap off. He lifts it slowly to his mouth, takes a sip, and then says, Ah. I did that in the movie, but it didn't make it in. But getting back to the main story about what was unusual about my involvement in the film, when I went to New York, Howard had the tapes of his father and himself in the studio where he says, Shut up, sit down. And that's when I found out exactly how it was said in terms of cadence and rhythm. And it was, shut up, sit down. Then I uh, shot it, had a break, came back to L.A., met Ivan on another project. And he said, you changed the reading. Because at the audition, I just said, shut up, sit down. And I feigned innocence. I said, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I wish you had been there. I didn't, I didn't realize that. I didn't know, but that's the way he said it, and a lot of people really got off on that. You know, mm -hmm. I told you not to be stupid, you moron. Howard was a terrific guy, by the I'm way. Sure. Very gentle man. He would show up after the show, which was taped late into the morning or early into the morning, and. Uh, there would be police barricades up and people behind the barricades. Even Already though, at that point in his career, he was super massive, right? Super. And he would sign autographs at 7 in the morning, having come from work. And uh, very soft-spoken man, friendly guy. The, uh, the acerbic wit is, he uses it for the show. You know, it made him world famous. Yeah. Uh, the confidence too, just to incredible. Go very anywhere. bright guy, very yeah. smart guy. Well read. Very personable man. Very cool. Thanks for going there. You're Trumbo. Oh, Trumbo. The minute I walked in to the audition, Jay Roach stood, the director, and I was standing, uh, and we shook hands, and it was apparent to both of us that we had struck an immediate chord of rapport. And I had three scenes to read. I read the first one, and they taped it. Uh, he said, that was terrific. That was great. Okay, let's do the next. And I did. And he said, geez, we should have shot it. Then I did the third. And he said, I loved it. Try coming at it from this angle, which I did. And they made the offer. Went down to New Orleans, shot all three scenes in one day. And I had worked with Helen Mirren and Hitchcock, in which I played another studio head. 
and she raises the bar. She is so good that you can't help but be good or rise above what you might have done without her. And Brian Cranston was really a gracious guy, loaded with talent. I liked him very much. I thought he did unique stuff with the piece. And uh, I had a great time. I wrote to Jay Roach subsequently, letting him know how much I thought of him and how the energy on the set was so positive and it all filters down from the top. And he was the guy at the top. He never responded. And I thought, that's unusual. So I wrote again. And he wrote back saying, God, it must have arrived when we were wrapping out because I never saw it. It never got to me. But blah, blah, blah. I want you in every project I do from now on. So that was uh, very fortuitous. He was married, is married, to the lead singer of the Bangles. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. I want to go back for a second. I like hearing answers to these kinds of questions from people as seasoned as you. Can you define acting? Staying in the moment, listening, not planning anything ahead, doing a lot of homework, being ready to shoot, and surprising yourself. Being private in public is one of the important aspects that my teacher, Michael Howard, shared with us. Because then, you know, what was the cough? I'm recording here. We, uh, when we're private in public, we're not, uh, we're not limiting ourselves. We're not doing anything that we expect to do. Uh, we might have an idea of where the scene should go. But we want it to be alive. We always want to be reacting. That's what it's all about, reacting. Moving to The Sopranos, you appeared in 13 episodes of The Sopranos as uh, Junior's lawyer, Harold Melvoin, seasons one through five. What's the origin story of your involvement with the show? I was in New York working on a film... I think it was called Happy Accidents with Vincent D'Onofrio and Marissa Tomei. And my agents called and said, they want to see you for uh, a one-day guest star part on a new show called The Sopranos. And I thought who I was then, you know, please, one day. I don't do one day. They said, but this is recurring. I said, they're just saying that because they want an actor of my stature in the show. I should have been smacked. So I said, all right, I'll make you happy. I'll go in. And I went in. And, you know, when, when you walk in to a meet and you have no need and there's no desperation, they find it very attractive. And if you can back it up with talent, you're in. Uh, they like people that are relaxed and confident. This will be a good guy to have on the set. Look, we're not going to have any trouble with this guy. Look how cool he is. He's confident. He's social. He's enjoying being in the room and meeting us. And that's the way I was, uh, actually, for most of my career after I broke through. And that's the way I was with The Sopranos. And I got the part, okay? And uh, we didn't know what we had that first year. Uh, I'll go into that a little later. Um, this was a one-day 
guest star shot, and I didn't know if he would recur. Because of Alan Coulter, I recurred. He was one of the writers. And when I came in to do my second episode, he said, yeah, we were looking for a lawyer. And I thought, well, let's get Richard and keep him on as Uncle Junior's lawyer. And uh, that turned into a five-year recurring character. What did he see? Did you ever have a conversation with him about what it was about you that made him want that part? Yeah, he thought I was a genius. Okay. Yeah, naturally. (laughs) Um, What, uh, this was a long time ago. I asked this question. I hesitate always, but lots of people will listen to this. And and, um, you were... You were a fly on the wall, uh, looking at it through anybody's prism who was actually there. Whatever remnants are in your mind is always going to be fascinating to someone who's hearing this for the first time. Any memories or experiences come to mind from that experience of being on that show, working with that with those people, being on that set? They're all positive experiences. Edie Falco was not only a brilliant actress and not only did she realize the part in such a personal way. She was very gracious after she had that scene, I forget what season it was, where she breaks down and she's on the edge of the bed and they are confronting one another with how bad their marriage is and how he has cheated. And she is bereft. And on the first episode of the following season, I went up to her to tell her, you make me proud to be part of this show. And she just, she blushed and was so grateful to hear something like that. Uh, Jimmy, the first year, like I say, we didn't know what we had. Now, he was handsomely paid, but every Friday, a mountain of sushi would show up on set. He sprung for it. He had that paid for and delivered, which was a very generous thing to do. He was a very generous man, friendly guy, uh, this wasn't on set, but second year, we had become a sensation, groundbreaking show. And uh, we were all out at, I think it was Cafe Luna in Little Italy, which is where Crazy Joe Gallo was murdered, by the way. Uh, and uh, who was there? Vincent Pastore, Big Pussy, uh, Joe Giannascolo, Jimmy. Uh, Artie Bucco, the uh, owner of the restaurant. John Ventimiglia. John Ventimiglia, that's right. Michael Imperioli, we were all there. And uh, we were all pretty loaded. And Jimmy was really loaded. And he gets up to go to the restroom and he's weaving. He says, I'm just a big, fat, balding guinea who got lucky. And we all pointed at him and said, you're right, you son of a... I'm not allowed to curse on the show, am I? It's a Sopranos podcast. You can say whatever you want. You motherfucker. Should have been me. (laughs) And he just laughed. He was a very nice guy who used to break chops, which that's what you do in New York. You like somebody, you break their balls. Where were you? um, What were you doing when you found out about his death? I was in L.A. I don't remember exactly what I was doing, but it just bowled me over. I couldn't believe it. Same with Robin Williams. When Jimmy uh, bought the farm, it was just a real gut punch. Uh, he was a young man. Uh, he had big appetites, but he was too young to go. And Robin was even more upsetting because, as I say, he took his own life, and he was so warm and such a real guy. You know, On a one-to-one, he was quiet, interested, 
as soon as another person showed up and there were three of us, he'd be on. I liked him so much. I remember when he was doing Fisher King, I was on the lot, so I visited the set and I told the AD, tell Robin Richard Portnow's here from Good Morning Vietnam. When he has a break, we'll say hello. And uh, during his break, he saw me, came over to me uh, at craft service, which that's where everyone hangs out. He sees me and he goes, ho, ho, a port now. And he gave me a big <laughs> hug. Love it. Yeah, it was that's nice. Amazing. So some other stuff about the Sopranos. Uh, you know, when we went out together to Little Italy, it was almost as if the Pope had arrived. Jimmy was just... Heard that incredibly sought after they'd come over they want to kiss his ring uh, tony sirico who used to be known as junior sirico he was a legitimate tough guy a real tough guy and i remember him from the old days uh he never wore socks even in the winter didn't wear socks with his shoes and uh when he was young Vogue did a piece on him as the new George Raft. He was really handsome. So it was interesting to see him in this new iteration 20 years later, hmm. you know, 30 years later. Because I first met him when I was tending bar in Greenwich Village at the Buffalo Roadhouse. And Junior used to come in. He was a patron? Uh, no, I was a bartender. He was a patron. He was a patron. Yeah. yeah, and he used to eat soup to nuts and drink like a fish and then tell the waitress, uh, give me the check, and he would sign it. And she would say, sir, nobody signs. You can't sign. It's cash on a barrel head. He said, I sign. And he left. Nobody was going to say, no, you don't sign. Nobody hmm. would say that to Junior. He was, he was the real deal. Tough customer. He was known as Junior. Is that did that play into Junior Soprano? Was there any connection there? No, no. Tony Sirico was known as Junior uh, for many, many years when he was in Manhattan. Got it. Uh, you know. Interesting. Were you a fan of the show? Yes, I watched the show. It's... Have you watched it end to end? Yes. Yeah. Um, favorite episode? Every episode. What are your thoughts, if any, on the writing and the ending? I thought the writing was incredible, nothing like it. It was so natural, so real. And you've looked at a lot of scripts, stage, screen, film, oh, yeah. TV. Probably over a thousand. And I'm also from New York. Yeah. I know how these guys spoke. Yeah. I used to hang with a bunch of guys like that. Some of them were connected. And this is how they spoke, you know, perhaps... Well, I don't think any of them went to therapy, but... That admitted it. That admitted it, yeah. You know, that was a big no-no. You're not allowed to tell anybody what's going on. Still is, in many respects, yeah. in, the, in culture we live in today. But it was uh, right on the money, the way they wrote this show. Uh, David Chase, really, he found something that I don't think anyone had found before or since. So just what I was going to say, again, coming from your, your perspective, you've looked at thousands of these. Is it right up there at the very top in terms of quality? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The ending, how did that go down for you? I thought it made all the sense in the world. It's a family having dinner, which is what basically this show was about. The Soprano family, the patriarch of which happened to be in the mob and the crew leader. And it made a lot of sense, and uh, I like the music. Uh, 
uh, just a small town boy. What don't know the name of that song. Uh, don't stop believing by yeah. Journey. I thought it was perfect. Uh, I was not let down. A lot of people were let down. They thought, what, what, what is going on here? It just made all the sense in the world to me. You know, a family who has grown and are at odds with one another on many levels and they're sitting down to eat and they're not talking. And what happens next happens next. Exactly. We don't know. Not only have you worked with David Chase, who is... um, immensely inspired by his work and the execution of his work, but also Barry Levinson, David Fincher, Woody Allen, Sidney Pollack, Cameron Crowe, Sidney Lumet, big titanous names. What's common in all their greatness? Willingness to listen to an actor, not deciding this is the way it should be, my vision, my way. They're willing to listen. They might discard it, but often they'll, they'll take it once, and if it works, they'll take credit for it. <laughs> um, Barry was that way. He just loved to let it go, kept the camera running, and uh, put stuff in that wasn't in the script. There's a moment in Tin Men that uh, was nowhere near the script. It was something... I learned to do in public school this whacked out face when you press your face up against a glass window and you put your lips against the window and blow and your cheeks puff out. It's really insane. And one night, it was a great night. We had 10 men groupies. It was the night that Danny and Richard fight. And we're in the parking lot, and our staging area was in the lobby of a Holiday Inn. They had glass windows. I went to get coffee. Everybody's in the lobby, sitting around waiting. And I go up to the window, and I make that face. And Barry opens the door, and he said, that's the sickest thing I've ever seen in my life. I don't think Danny saw it. Do it again. And, I mean, everybody just fell down. And then he said to me, I got to find a place to put it in the movie. And he did. And it made it into the EPK and the trailer. He listens, he watches. And I think that's the mark of a really good director to not be locked in, but to listen to what his actors might bring to it. And I remember Jeremy Paul Kagan, one of my first big jobs, it was a movie of the week. I said, uh, listen, what I would like to do, he said, don't tell me, show me, which is, it's a visual medium. Directors want to see it. Mm. Don't tell them about it. Do it. Mm. Just do it. And directors I have not liked have not listened. You know, they've uh, directed through intimidation. I haven't worked with many of those, but it is not conducive to a creative uh, result. Certainly nobody on that list that I just rattled off. No, none of those Their attribute guys. is listening. Amazing. Yeah. Um, nicely articulated. Thank you. Uh, what's on your plate right now? Any projects coming out soon, this year, next yeah, year? I did a film that is very controversial, and it'll be coming out in the fall. It's called Roe vs. Wade. Uh, it tracks the 1973 court case and the way it was resolved, and I play one of the Supreme Court justices, William O. Douglas, longest sitting justice in American history, not 
a well-liked man. Choleric personality, and he was a drinker and a womanizer. He wrote his decisions hastily. John Voight is the Supreme Court Justice, and we had Corbin Burnson. Wow. John Schneider, Steve Gutenberg, Robert Davi, uh, Billy. What the heck is his last name? Forsythe, William Forsythe, wonderful actor. I've is this a feature? Yeah, it's a feature. Uh, and uh, it'll definitely be released because it's so controversial. Shooting in Washington in the summertime wearing a suit. Ooh. A little uncomfortable. A little uncomfortable, especially compared to what you're wearing right now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm naked. Yeah. Are you reading anything good at the moment? Uh, yeah, Michael Hogan, terrific novelist. No, I haven't uh, been reading any scripts that I feel are viable. I've turned down a few. Uh, one that was going to be shot in Hong Kong. What's your criteria? Do you have a criteria? That good makes- story, character development, and where it's shot. You know, uh, I really don't want to shoot anything in the Middle East. I don't want to shoot anything where I might be imperiled. Mm-hmm. I do like extreme locations. I've been on many, uh, but that's part of my criteria. And uh, how long I'll be out of town. I have two dogs. I miss them when I'm away. Uh, so those are some of the things, the director, the cast. But particularly when I'm reading a script, is the script viable? Is there a good story? Are the characters good? And is my character good? Is L.A. home? Now it is. How long I, have you been in L.A.? Since July 2nd, 1987. Tomorrow will make 30 Two years. But you're, a, you're from Brooklyn. Brooklyn, New York. Just two years ago, I gave up my New York apartment, my Manhattan apartment, finally. So now I am 100% Angelian. Wow. Favorite musician? Hendrix. Favorite album? Doesn't have to be a Hendrix album. Experienced. Are you experienced? I would say Hendrix was my favorite, and that's my favorite album. Favorite boxer? That's a tough one, but I have, I'd have to say Joe Frazier. Okay. You know, he didn't stop coming. He was moving forward for the entire fight, and he was, he could hit. Have you met him? Never met him. Spent some time in Philadelphia shooting. Uh, he was... I think he was deceased, but he spent his final days in a small room at the back of his gym, just like Morgan Freeman in Million Dollar Baby. He lived at the back of the gym in a small room. And I thought that was tragic because Joe was all heart, really good boxer. I remember watching a clip of him. Now, I hit the speed bag. I'm really good on it, but I don't box the speed bag. Jab, jab, hook, uppercut. I hit it with the rhythm. Joe boxed it, which is... Impossible. Impossible, because it's moving a mile a minute. And when you can find it, jab, 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 hook, hook, uppercut, then you are really boxing someone, because they're not standing still. They're moving their head, not as fast as a speed bag. So if you can box a speed bag, you can find your target when you're in the ring. Are there any boxers today that you like? Canelo. Yeah, guy's a bull. And in his last fight against Jacobs, he was slipping to the left and right while moving forward, which is very hard to do. And he hadn't done that previously. And it's the mark of a great fighter. 
slipping just enough to make your opponent miss. And when you see fighters with cauliflower ears, that's because they slipped a lot, but not enough. And the glove grazed their ear, especially back in the old days when they didn't wrap the wrists, when they had laced up gloves. Then you saw fighters with heavily cauliflowered ears. There was even a technique when you put yourself between the ref and your opponent, it was called lacing. You get in tight with your opponent, you run the laces up the side of his face, and the laces will rip a cut in his face. It's called lacing. Highly illegal. But wow. Highly effective. You know your stuff. I'm a huge Rocky fan. Can you talk about the choreography on those films? I thought the choreography was incredible. There were never any fight movies like that before. Uh, I also think that people do not give Stallone enough credit. I'm in that camp of fully agreeing with that statement. That was the Oscar-winning film, original screenplay. It was amazing. It was a perfect screenplay. Did you know that Burt Reynolds is who they wanted to be Rocky? I thought it was Ryan O'Neill. I read Burt Reynolds somewhere. Really? Stallone was not uh, the choice, but he fought for it. And he wouldn't give it up. He knew this was his shot. Amazing foresight. Just like Chaz Palminteri in A yeah. Bronx Tale. Yeah. I saw the play. Yeah. I was friends with Chaz. And they came to him with offers, and he was not making money at this point. He really hadn't broken through. And he just kept saying, not unless I play Little John. They all said, no, nobody knows you. And then De Niro showed up because it was the hottest ticket in town. It was not a one-man show. It was a play with one actor playing all 30 parts. There were 30 characters. Chas played them all. And De Niro said, uh, sure, play Little John. I don't care. You're great. And that was it, you know. And the next film Chas did was Bullets Over Broadway. He was nominated for the Oscar. But he knew, just like Stallone knew, this is my shot. I've written a great story with great characters. I am not giving it up. Richard, this was great. Thank you so much. Pleasure's been mine. Thank you, Vic. 